as you see them, ask you to join me as we pray. Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, that as we come and we read your word, as we have sang your word, as we prayed for your mission and your kingdom, that Lord, even now today, as we come before you, that you would speak to us through your word. Our hope is not in our righteousness, Lord. We were reminded by the psalmist that only those with a blameless life and clean hands may come to your holy hill and dwell with you. And Lord, we confess that on the account of Psalm 15, Lord, that we are not worthy in our own righteousness. Lord, we have fallen short of being able to commune with you, dwell with you. And so today, Lord, we are grateful that, there, that there's one that has been blameless and righteous on our behalf. And that our plea is the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that today, Lord, we have confidence that you are here with us as we have gathered. Lord, to dwell and to speak. To draw us around your table and transform our vision for our own lives. That we might bring glory to you. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. In a minute, I'm going to read beginning in verse 12. I'm grateful for our worship team. Show your appreciation to them as they sit down. We're continuing our series, Gospel Clarity, the second half of Romans chapter 2. And uh, let's read it together. And then ask for God's blessing as we read it. As I said, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad to be able to gather and worship with you today. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent as you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Father, we confess to you as we have heard your word that we need your grace and your spirit in discerning it. Not only that we might understand its meaning, but Lord, that in our hearts we might approve what is true, rest in what is promised, feel conviction about what is warned against. And so we ask you to do that even now as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1981, Steven Seinberg killed his wife in the middle of the night in Scottsdale, Arizona. In the middle of the night, he stabbed her 26 times with a knife from the kitchen. When the time came for his trial, his attorney made the case that he had experienced the entire thing while sleepwalking. It was called the homicidal somnambulism defense. That was the technical term. Interestingly, the crazy defense worked, and he was declared not guilty by reason of insanity, even though at the time of the trial, he was declared legally sane. He walked free. Arizona eventually changed its laws so that this defense couldn't be used again in the future. As we begin verse 12 today, we're connecting back to some final words in verse 11 where we are reminded that God shows no partiality in his judgment. And we hear that story and we feel on the surface of it the absurdity of it because even in that we can see through the reality of a situation. A defense like that has no place in a in a courtroom where, where God can see the realities of the heart. <laughs> and so some things that seem to have made sense in some group of people's eyes, often later, and even in Arizona's laws, became clearly foolish before them, such that they changed them because they could see through that this was not just. Some things that seem clear and great defenses to us. We know when we get honest that the God who judges partially, impartially, that that God can see through all of our defenses on the day when he will bring all of our secrets to light. And as we begin in verse 12, we're in the middle of this section in this series called Gospel Clarity where we've been looking at what the Bible says about the reality of our sin our position before God, and the question, do we really deserve God's judgment because of our sin? Am I really a sinner? Paul has been trying to help us level with the question, when the Bible talks about sinners, am I one of them? Is that how I should regard myself? 
And so as we begin in verse 12 today, we're connected back to the final words of verse 11, where we're reminded that God shows no partiality in his judgment. There are no special circumstances, he is saying, for Jews or Gentiles as he writes this letter. There's no different system when it comes to giving an account of our life before God and reckoning with the record of our sin. There are no special categories to find ourselves in. He wants to gather us all in the category of guilty before God as he prepares us to hear the good news. Whether Jew or Gentile, we have the same problem. We're sinful. We've lived our lives without reference to God, have not done or been what God commands us to be. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul seeks to rescue us from foolish defenses that will unravel on the day when God, the impartial judge, reveals our secrets. There are some defenses that might hold up in our courts, but won't hold up before God. That's the word that this passage has for us. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to walk through some sample defenses that he has heard where people have raised things and said, well, hang on a second, I don't know that I'm that guilty. I'm not condemned before you. I'm not deserving of this judgment. And generally speaking, I see myself as pretty good. And he's going to address those defenses one by one so that we're not tempted to use a defense that will work with one another but will never stand up in the day we give account of our lives before God. So Paul seeks to rescue us here from the foolish defenses that will unravel on the day when God reveals our secrets. And he helps address three lines of defense that he calls foolish that we shouldn't trust with such a serious matter as our eternity before us. I think it's true that we're tempted to trust our own story, our own defenses, the things that we concoct when God's word is trying to instruct us about our real need for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ as it reveals our own sinfulness personally. And so here are the three defenses that, that Paul calls foolish and he warns us from. And they start, the first one we see in verses 12 through 16. And the first thing he says is don't claim ignorance as an excuse. Don't claim ignorance as an excuse. Mainly with the first excuse, Paul is addressing Gentiles who may feel like they didn't know much about God or have the law of God available to them to really be able to know that they were doing anything wrong. It's the ignorance defense, right? Like, I mean, God, you didn't give us all of your word. You gave it to the Jewish people, and here we were living in Rome, and you got this, this letters being written to kind of two groups of people, Jewish people who grew up in a really instructed religious environment and Gentiles who had, had all kinds of beliefs and, and now are hearing this gospel, and they're saying, hang on a second, we didn't know all of that. Are we really guilty? We were expected to know right from wrong? I mean, how could we be guilty if we didn't know what we were doing is wrong? Sounds pretty reasonable, right? Can I really be accountable for something that you didn't tell me I was supposed to do? I mean, the parents, you, you guys have heard that one before, right? I mean, we hear that all the time. Well, this is the same thing that he's dealing with here in this text. In verse 12, as he sets us up, he says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Notice. And then he goes on and he addresses, that's the Gentiles. 
And then he goes on to say to the Jews, and all who have sinned with the law will be judged by the law. He says, you know, the, the, the standard is going to be righteousness, whether we have sinned against what is right, regardless of where we find our knowledge about right and wrong. He says that ultimately the law lines up with what we discover in the conscience. In verse 13, he alludes to what he will say in our second two defenses here as we look at our next sections to address the Jewish people. Uh, he says, you know, it's not hearing the law that matters, but doing it. So the question that every person has to ask is, have I done what is right before God in my life? Have I done what is right before God with what I've known to be right? And on that basis alone, he says, whether you were well instructed by the law or simply what you know by just observing life and, and, and what's written in your heart, you are responsible to God. So let's see how he makes that argument. In verse 14, he turns to this first claim that we're talking about, the claim of ignorance of right and wrong as a defense that we can't be held guilty before God. It's the sort of defense that would say, hold on now, I don't know if any of the, I didn't know that any of the things I was doing is wrong. Or then I would have done something differently, right? Mom and dad, if only I'd known, I certainly wouldn't have disobeyed you. Why would you ever think that? You can't hold me accountable for that. Well, Paul says that regardless of whether we have the law or have instruction from God or not, Paul says we show that we know a lot more about right and wrong than we would like to admit, even without God's law. And we still go against it. We still go against what we know. He says there are two things we need to slow down and consider. First, he says, as he rolls through these verses, then beginning in 14, he says that first, we have a sort of universal moral code written on our hearts that means that we're not ignorant of what is right and wrong. That every one of us, by virtue of being created in the image of God, has written on our hearts a basic understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Look how he says it. He says, when Gentiles, those without the law, that's what he's saying, without, with, with sort of small amounts of instruction in the law, who do not have the law, when they, by nature, by how they were created, do the things that the law requires, sort of line up their lives around many of the same virtues and ideas, they become a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They sort of, they sort of tell on themselves about exactly how much they knew and didn't obey. They show, he says, real clearly that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And this is the idea that I just said, that, that in some way we all have an imprinted sense of basic right and wrong in our hearts that we carry with us because we've been created by God. The point is, the law is not what gives us our first information about what is right and wrong. We have it as a deep abiding impulse at the core of who we are. Now that's his argument. Now, because sometimes people disagree with that, let's think about what that means for us. That because sometimes people disagree on a few details about where that right and wrong ends and begins, we just assume that everything's up for grabs. We make the argument, well, because we couldn't settle on some of the details of right and wrong on the edges, you know what, it's all just relative to what we think. But that's not a very good argument because if you look at, the, look at human experience, the vast majority of us at the core understand the basic things of right and wrong and agree about what they are. And so, 
we are all, he says, determining right and wrong all day long. <laughs> you know, we are deciding what is good, laying it out, deciding what is bad, determining whether the things other people are doing. Our conscience is bearing witness to this sorting out of right and wrong that goes, goes on. And, and for your entire life, you've been considering every day, multiple times, all the time, whether the things you're doing are right or whether they're wrong. And have a pretty good sense of what those are. A good way to see how clear we are generally and that just because we disagree on the edges doesn't mean that we don't share this common understanding of right and wrong that we're responsible to. A good way uh, to see it clearly is, is not to ask whether we think something is right or wrong when we observe others doing it, but to ask whether we think it's right or wrong when someone is doing it to us. Let me show you what I mean. You know, I mean, you can lie to one another or to the government, but you better not lie to me. Right? You can swindle someone else out of their money and laugh about it and call it a game, but you better not swindle me. That's wrong. You can say whatever you want to the neighbor's kid, but you don't talk like that to my children. See, we got clarity, don't we? It's pretty clear. Like, we know when that line's been crossed. You can discriminate against someone else's race, gender, language, class, but if you're going to use any of that to discriminate against me, watch out. You can find out real quick how well someone knows right and wrong when there's a chance they might become the victim. And that is true the world over. We gain amazing clarity when it's being done to us. See, the truth is, we all recognize and can acknowledge the thing that Paul says here, that this basic morality, basic sense of right and wrong, is something we've had from the day we were born. The second thing he does, though, is he doesn't just kind of leave it there and be like, yeah, yeah, we've got this universal principle. He kind of deepens it, and uh, he, what he does is he calls a witness. <laughs> he said, let's just, let's just see how we did with the basic things that we knew, you know. If you're going to say, you know, oh, I didn't know all those things in the law. You didn't give me all that much instruction. Let's just uh, call your conscience as a witness. He calls the conscience to the witness stand, and he says our conscience bears witness that there have been many times where we where we listened to our inward moral code and other times where it was screaming at us and we ignored it. He says on the day when we stand before the Lord, the Lord's going to call a witness. He pictures it as, as that day when God reveals our secrets. He's going to pick some things out that of what we have done or what we failed to do. He's going to call our very own conscience to the witness stand and he's going to say to our very own conscience, did they know that what they were doing was wrong? <laughs> And their conscience is going to say, oh yeah, they knew. So he says, our conscience, our conscience bears witness against us that we didn't know. And at times it actually it sort of relieves us and says, yeah, you followed it on that, that instance. It excuses and accuses. And the truth is, there's been many times in all of our lives where we have known what is right and purposefully done what is wrong. And so, so here he says, that means we haven't lived righteous lives. We're, we're condemned as people who've walked away from God's righteousness. And that's just one way in which we see it. Brothers and sisters, listen, let, let's not be so foolish to count on claims of ignorance when eternity is in view about whether we genuinely need to be forgiven, atoned for, to have our sins covered, 
We can't be so foolish to think that we're going to be able to claim that we didn't know enough when God will, God will call to the witness stand our own conscience on that day when he reveals secrets. This is what he says. He says, be honest now so that there's no surprises later. Let's be honest about our sin and seek the Lord for genuine repentance and forgiveness through Christ before that day. Because God has mercy to extend to those who do not cover their sin but confess and forsake it. Having spoken then to the Gentiles about the claim to ignorance, he turns to religious Jews who are often uh, were overconfident at that time that they were right with God because of their sort of religious position, because of the privileged position of knowledge they're in. And he deals now with two more foolish defenses that I think that we can sort of identify with as well. So the first thing you want to do is don't, don't buy into this excuse of ignorance as a defense. The second thing that he says is don't pretend knowledge is enough. Don't pretend knowledge is enough. You know, the, the primary divide he's talking to here is that here the Gentiles kind of didn't understand. There's a lot they didn't know and have given to them by instruction, but the Jewish people had a lot. They've been entrusted with God's word and they knew right from wrong and they, they, they were proud of, of being entrusted with this and how much they had sort of tried to follow the pattern in their eyes. So you got this division between those who knew and those who didn't. We've already heard in verse 13, though, an important summary. In verse 13, it said, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not the hearers that are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So in a sense, what he's saying is, hey, before you feel proud that you've been entrusted with this sense of knowledge, let's be remember that we're going to be judged on our doing. <laughs> You know, is it kind of unnerving to be reminded that we're going to be judged on our doing, not on, you know, kind of the way we modernly say it, on our intentions? This is what he's saying. You're going to be judged on your doing, not your intentions. You're going to be judged on your doing, not on what you knew and how well you could talk about God. The question is, is like, if we're going to, if we're going to find out, uh, are you guilty before God or are you innocent we're going to ask, what did you do? <laughs> like, what kind of decisions did you make in life? Were there times in your life where you disobeyed God, where you walked for long periods of time without reference to him? The question is, what did you do? You see, we're, we love to judge our intentions and to defend ourselves with our intentions. But he says here that, that the question of whether we're guilty before God and therefore we need a Savior to stand in our place is one of what we have done. Not what we'd hoped to do. So he continues now to kind of pull this thread. The Jewish people were tempted to believe that they were fine because comparatively they knew a lot and felt like they had improved upon what others had done. Because they had the privilege of so much revelation from God, and at least in their own eyes, were less sinful by degree than the Gentile world around them. You see, that's what's happening here, right? They were less sinful in their eyes by degree than the Gentile world around them because of the knowledge that God had entrusted them with. But they couldn't see and weren't willing to admit just how much they had fallen short. And so... With that comparison of righteousness, this sort of comparative obedience, 
They felt like they were safe. They had a defense. We, we've got all this, God. We know all of these things. And so beginning in verse 17, he starts in on that line of thinking so that we don't fall prey to this foolish defense of pretending that knowledge is enough. He starts talking about their knowledge. He says, he, he kind of begins this if-then argument. Follow with me there, beginning in verse 17. You know, here's some of the ifs. If you call yourself a Jew, which they carried as a term of pride, right? Appropriately being God's people. If you rely on the law, you know, they'd have perked up, that's me. I'm good. You know, they considered the law in many ways to be their security. If you know his will, oh yeah, we know his will. We're those people. You know, we know this. If you claim to approve what is excellent, that's right. We can tell you what's right, what's wrong. We, we say it's good. We say it's right. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, God, you put us here so that we could show all those other people what was wrong with them. We're the ones who know. If you are a light to those in darkness, think of the imagery, an instructor to the foolish. We get a special category here because of all that you know. A teacher to the children. You see, Paul is appealing to the sort of things the Jewish people he is writing to would have taken pride in or thought about themselves. But then he turns it on them by asking a series of questions that we're to understand have some obvious answers. Beginning in verse 12, it's sort of like, then what is wrong with you? If you have all of that, do you not teach yourself? And the answer is, apparently not, right? Just okay, I'll answer them for you, just to make it easy. Right? We're going to test you later, but I'll just give you the answers. Do you not teach yourself? Apparently not. That's the point. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? The answer is yes. Ways in which they were. While you say no one must commit adultery, how's your record? Answer, not good. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? Now, this one I had to stop for a while. I was like, what is that all about, right? Now, obviously, idols are terrible. They're an abomination. Stay away from them. But apparently at this time, many Jewish people who abhorred those idols found it just fine then to take the idols out of temples and meld them down and keep the precious metals for wealth. Now, I think if you've mainly grown up in the United States, this may seem weird to you because you think of a temple as a really kind of big, secure building inside which there might be a statue or something. But if, if you've traveled overseas into some places in other religious contexts, you realize there's like little temples on the edge of everybody's property with statues that they've considered precious out in broad daylight at all times. And apparently, it was a normal thing for Jewish people to be like, well, you know, it's not, we hate those dumb things anyway. Well, why don't I just take that? And they had a reputation for doing that a reputation for thievery, and gaining an advantage on the back of things that they say they abhorred. <laughs> I mean, we can see the hypocrisy in that, can't we? And so he goes on, you know, that may sound, it, it, the meaning of this is the point in verse 23. He says that they simultaneously used the law to boast about their level of righteousness while committing their own share of unrighteous deeds. See what it says there in verse 23? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking it. You've got your own ways of doing it while you pretend to be a guide to the blind. You have your own ways of breaking the law in special circumstances in, in your life, but, but you proclaim to the culture what's wrong with them. 
listen, this is the addiction of the religiously informed in their day and ours, okay? Religiously informed people, both in their day and our day, have this have this sort of addiction, constantly using the law or the instruction of God's word to point out the sin of others without ever really honestly turning it on themselves. Now here's where I think we can associate. (laughs) It's not just a Jewish problem, is it? As we take the instruction of God's word in modern day United States sitting here. How tempted are we to follow this addiction as we feel like we have this gift of God's word and this knowledge of it that that it ought to be turned on us to show the light of who we really are and produce a genuine humility before God as undeserving sinners who have been shown mercy that we would see that from God's word with increasing clarity day after day that I would be able to use God's word to see just how much he had to do to save me. Therefore, I'm humbled and I'm gracious and I understand how difficult it is for people outside here. Instead of doing that and turning the light of God's word on us, I pretend to be a guide to the blind and I spend all my time aiming it at people who I believe are uninstructed. And there's a danger. Because Before long, we start to think we're pretty good when we do that. Before long, we might just sort of grow up in an environment where we think because we were instructed and we could point out what was right and wrong out there and try to avoid those things, we're never concerned about the sin that was really in here. And it's that sin that'll drag us to hell. Somebody else's sin isn't going to do it, but yours will. And what he's saying is, God won't be unjust when he hands down the sentence. Listen, the privilege of knowing God's word is not that we would use it first and foremost to judge those outside of our lives, but that by its light, we would come to hear just how deeply we need the saving mercy of Christ on the cross. If you've never understood that, you've probably taken the aim of that light and you've pointed it in the wrong direction. This is what the Jewish people had done, what Paul's countering, what he's warning you not to do. Take that knowledge and think somehow by having the knowledge and being able to point to what you think are the big things, that you can avoid God's judgment. Now let's put this in context again. He's saying this because there is an abundant mercy from God available to us that he's fearing we'll miss out as we approve ourselves rather than trust Christ for our righteousness. And that that comparison game, if we're not careful, more and more and more we become convinced in our hearts, in our lives, that that God's lucky to have us. And what that really reveals is that he never really had us in the first place. And some of you may have, listen, this might be a reckoning day for you. Decades of growing up in a church and hearing these things and approving in your mind what is good and being a guide to the blind. And you look and deep down there's never been a real genuine repentance of heart. A turning of that light on you. Where you celebrate, find gratitude in what God has done. Just lavishly to forgive you in Christ. 
where you can name, you can name the, the sins that you believe you deserve judgment for. <laughs> you, see, you see, I think that's important, that we could actually look in our own life and be like, man, if God counted my sins, there's some. And it was serious. And it is serious. And if it weren't for the grace of God, the kindness of God, I wouldn't have any reason to hope that I could stand in the day of judgment when my secrets are revealed. But oh, it's glorious when we finally get honest. It's glorious when we finally use the light of God's instruction and it shines in there and we're, we're able to realize that even as bad as that is, that God reached down to save us, to grant us mercy, to cover us, to call us around his table as we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel and the good news that we proclaim and trust in. Listen, if you feel even now like the work of Christ on your behalf is of little value to you, then perhaps what is being revealed is that you have been selling yourself the idea that you are all right because others around you are worse. Turn the instruction of God's word honestly on your own life. See through the hypocrisy that you present outwardly and before long you begin to feel like your only hope is in God, in a God that is merciful and you'll rejoice in remembering that the God of mercy has sent Jesus to stand in the place of judgment for your sins even when you couldn't do anything. And that's when it becomes real and produces a humble graciousness, not only in your life, but in a whole people. What does it look like when a whole church trusts that gospel? <laughs> well, they get honest. <laughs> they, don't, they, they use the light on, on themselves. They help one another do that, and it produces fruit and repentance and change and transformation that, that ultimately becomes undeniable in a world that can't reckon with their own guilt and sin. We need it deeply. We need it not just for the people out there. We need it for this church in here that the instruction and gift of God's word would divide the truth in our hearts. Don't, don't trust that knowledge is enough. The third thing we see is don't rely on rituals to cover you. Don't rely on rituals to cover you. As Paul closes this section of his argument here in chapter 2, we're rightfully, he's explaining and arguing that we're rightfully under God's judgment apart from Christ. He deals with one more foolish defense that might be offered. You see, religious rituals rely on a sort of inability for us as people to tell the difference between two really similar things. You know, th this is the danger when we don't dig into the substance and we just go along participating in sort of visible spiritual rituals without dealing with our hearts. Because what happens is we, we run into this problem where it's really hard in a place where we all participate in the rituals of coming and going and saying the right things and singing the songs and maybe even being baptized or having walked an aisle or gone through these various things. It's really easy to become confused about the difference between what's genuine and what's really not. Because on the surface, for all I know, unless I've had a lot of time to spend with you, for all I know, I can just see what you're doing and going through and the motions. And I can't see the substance. And you could go on for year after year here in the midst of this church thinking that because you do the Christian things, you have a genuine 
identity of faith. That you're right with God. There was a case in Malaysia where a man was arrested for drug trafficking and he faced a really severe punishment. The man who had been identified and then arrested claimed he was innocent and it was quickly complicated by the fact that he was one of two identical twins. So the prosecuting attorney making the case could not prove which of the two twins had actually committed the crime. There was no way to narrow it down based on the set of evidence that they had who had actually done it because they were being identified visibly. And so they both got off. For fear of accusing someone who had not committed the crime, both of the twins walked free. And you see, similarly, we can sometimes be confused when we look on the surface between a sort of false outward spirituality and the real thing. The one who had done it and the one who hadn't done it. <laughs> because they look similar, don't they? It looks similar to go through the rituals and practices even when you know deep down there's no sincerity of repentance and trust in Christ. Paul addresses this temptation for the Jewish people to rely on their ritual symbols and he goes into this kind of long argument about circumcision but really at the heart of it is this temptation to rely on ritual symbols of belonging to God when there's been no real substance that accompanies them that is his concern here in bringing up circumcision it had been given as a sign of devotion to God's covenant for the people of Israel but he's saying right away that it can't be depended on to make them right with God and cover their sins Verse 25 through 7 makes the argument this way. Verse 25, keeping the law in regards to the symbol or ritual of circumcision doesn't count for anything if you go on sinfully breaking the law, he says. Your disobedience in all these other respects undoes any importance of obedience in the symbol. You can't rely on that for righteousness. Paul goes on and says to prove his point, you would see someone substantively obeying the law and assume that they probably are circumcised because keeping the law is more significant and has greater substance than just practicing the symbol. So he says the man who has not been circumcised yet keeps the law well and shows that your outward symbol is not where the real significance lies. Now, if you didn't follow that, Paul summarizes his point in verse 28 because it's kind of a complicated argument, but here's what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Did you hear that? Merely one outwardly. Going through the symbolic motions. That's what he means. No one, this, we're tempted to believe somehow a mere outwardness of religiosity somehow matters. This is what he's saying. The real thing that matters, he, he goes on to finish, is what that symbol was meant to point to in substance. He calls it a removal of sin from the heart that only God can do by his spirit, not the following of the letter of a law. And he says what this, this symbol was preparing to recognize the need for God's work in our hearts, to have sin cut out of our lives, to become dependent on God because of how deep it had gone, and to receive the promise of God's work in Jesus Christ. But often these rituals, 
And here's the warning and meaning for us. We are all tempted to put our outward religious religious rituals on display and even believe that because we've gone through some process or we've checked the religious box and we're all right. That may be you going through the motions. But often these rituals are a cover for no substance spiritually at the heart level. We flee to the rituals as our evidence when challenged that we're good with God. When on a heart level, we know that our inward and outward unrighteousness condemn us and show us that we're deserving of His judgment. In the, in the end, Paul reminds us of something clear. This is no human court. It's foolish for us to trust outward rituals instead of the genuine repentance of heart and faith towards Jesus Christ, which God invites us to free us from our sin and so I, I just want to ask you are some is there some manner in which you're foolishly trusting in ignorance before God to kind of slide through if there's a judgment <laughs> is there some way in which you have believed because of the things you know God is going to give you a pass about the things that you've done Is there some manner in which your defense before God is simply, I I went to church and I put the money in the plate and I I was even baptized, God, but, but, but you know that there was never really a time where you reckoned inwardly with God, confessed that you were a sinner, asked for His redeeming work in your life and put all of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you foolishly believing that, that God doesn't see through that? Because in the end, all that matters, he says, is that our praise, our approval is not from man, but from God. Do you see the last sentence there? You see, when, we, when we're concerned about the substance, it means we're concerned and we recognize that our approval is a matter of what's true before God. And it doesn't matter what we can convince ourselves of and what we can convince everyone else around us of. All that matters is what God knows about us. And so I just want to say, here in the midst of just a desert in the world that says, whatever you feel, that's, that's what you should go with. I just want you to hear me say, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a hill of beans what we believe. It matters what God approves and how God says that we can be made right with Him. And He has said that we're far worse than we have ever guessed, but even in our sinfulness, His love runs so deep that He gave us a Savior, and He invites us to turn from our sin and be freed from the guilt that it deserves, and to entrust ourselves to Him, and He promises forgiveness, atonement, belonging in His family, redemption, the security of eternity, not because of our works of righteousness, But on that day, because we plead no contest, and Jesus has covered it all. That is what is available for you. And I just want to beg and plead with you that if you're playing games, if it's it's rituals to cover, evasions to make yourself not feel guilty, that for a moment you would hear God pleading with you to trust what He's given in His Son, 
and turn your life to him today. And not trust on foolish defenses.